Hey y'all, before we get to today's show, we have some exciting news. We are dropping two brand new merch designs and we literally could not be more excited. And to celebrate and get in the holiday spirit, we want to send one of you a $100 Amazon gift card, a killer crime kit. So you have to check it out because it's got tons of awesome stuff in it and some of our new merch to rep. So to enter, we want you to head to our Instagram and click the post. You can tag a true crime obsessed bestie in the comments, comment your favorite KQ quote, and make sure you're following us at Killer Queens Podcast if you're not already. Now, you can enter as many times as you want. You have to tag a different person for each entry, but you can enter as many times as you want to. And we're going to close next Saturday, the 18th at 11.59 p.m. So get your entries in before then, and then we will be notifying the winner on our Instagram the next day. Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast, And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge, and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, hey, hey. You did it again. Oh, no, I did. Yep. Apparently, I can't not do it. Nope. (laughs) And it took everything in me not to do, hey, 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 I'm what's happening. (laughs) But now you still did it. I did it. Creatures of habit we are. If I explained it, it would have been weird. So I just went went for it. Just went Mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. Well, we hope y'all are having a good day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I like to go Wario every once in a while. Apparently. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, you know, we're excited to be here. Yeah, welcome to Killer Queens. Welcome to Killer Queens. Oh, my God. If you've never been here before, you know, welcome. But also, we're not your typical true crime pod. Mm-mm. I think. I think we're a little different. We, uh, we're we going to remind you of days gone by. Sure, absolutely. We're also a conversational podcast. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to be gal palin. That's what we're going to do. Totes. And also, if you have been here before or if you haven't, if this is your first time, please don't forget, we got a ton of bonus episodes on our Patreon. Mm-hmm. I'm talking like hundreds. I think we're up to like 130-something mixtapes. Mixtapes. Mm-hmm. We have a ton of Doc Jams. Mm-hmm. We yeah, got- we've done series. Let's see. We The first one we did was what? Don't Fuck With Cats. Yeah. I think we've done... Well, we, no, Tiger King was a main feed. Well, it was the Doc Jam and we released on the main feed too. Well, that's that's what I mean. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But was it the Bobby Durst? Mm-hmm. Was the it Jinx? Jinx? We've done Confession Killer. We've done... Double we did disguise. a whole confusing thing with Unsolved. So, or um, un, what is it? Unraveled. Yeah, very confused there. We've done Killer. The Devil You Know. Yeah, the Devil You Know, both of them. Yeah, there's all kind of shit on there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. Yeah. So definitely check it out if you want bonus episodes. And we also host a weekly show for Spotify on Spotify Green Room, which you can now listen to on a computer browser. You don't have to download the app anymore. Yeah. Uh, True Crime Rewind. So check that out. It's Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Central if you want to check it live. And we just chit-chat and you actually get to come up and talk. We get to hear your lovely voices. Yes. And, you know, there's also the comment section. So you're in constant contact with us. Just yes. pretty exciting. Yes. We love it. So those are the other things you can check out if you want more episodes. Yeah. So enough of the business. Why don't we just go ahead and get into it? I think we should. Yeah. So here's a little episode description. On February 28th, 1997, two men went into a branch of Bank of America in North Hollywood. They were heavily armed and heavily armored. They quickly got the attention of the employees and bystanders by firing into the air. A patrol car outside the bank heard the shots and reported a robbery with shots fired. What ensued was one of the biggest gun battles in U.S. history. 
Oh, and it was broadcast live nationally on TV. No biggie. Wow. Yeah. We do have some trigger warnings, gun violence, murder, suicide, robbery, and assault. So just be aware that that is going to be coming up. Yes. All right. Well, let's get started with a bromance. Yeah. Bros before hoes. Exactly. Larry and Emil, BFFs. On the morning of February 28, 1997, a white 1987 Chevrolet celebrity. I've never heard of this. You've never heard of a Chev- Chevrolet celebrity? No. Have you? Yep. Really? It's an older car. I mean, obviously, they don't, they don't, they don't make them anymore, but. Yeah. I thought you were fucking with me. Oh. No, I really do. Well, this Chevrolet celebrity pulled into the parking lot of the Bank of America branch at 6600 Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Inside the car, two men sat for a few seconds before each taking a dose of phenobarbital. It was prescribed to one of the men as a sedative, and for what they were about to do, they needed to calm their nerves. At the end of the day, a toxicology report would also find ephedrine, and I'm going to mess this up even though... Oh, and thank you to Mark for uh, writing this up. Yes. But Mark even put the pronunciation. I'm still going to fuck it up. I'm positive. Phenylpropanolamine. Phenylpropanolamine. Yeah, you got it. Okay. In one man's blood and Dilantin in the other, who was known to suffer from seizures. After they took the drug, they each stepped out of the car and entered the bank. Before we get into the events that took place that day, though, we're going to take a look at who these men were and what happened to get them to this point. First, we'll talk about Larry Eugene Phillips Jr., who was born in September of 1970 to Dorothy Clay and Larry Phillips Sr. On his birth certificate, his name was listed as Larry Warfel, a name he used for 17 years until he took his father's name. Almost all the information given to the hospital by Larry Sr. and Dorothy was fake. The reason? Well, Larry Sr. wasn't exactly on the right side of the law. He'd been in and out of jail for much of his adult life, and at one point he was transferred to the Colorado State Hospital and Mental Facility. After being there for about 10 months or so, he managed to escape. Although it's unknown exactly how, it's suspected that he used a series of underground tunnels beneath the facility. Jeez, it's like, that is a movie in itself, right? I know. Like, yeah, exactly. After his escape, he met Dorothy, who was also not exactly a law follower either although not to the extent of Larry Sr. She'd been arrested a few times as a sex worker, and apparently during one of her stays in jail, she stabbed a fellow inmate, resulting in more time on the inside. After they hooked up, the pair made their way to Salt Lake City, Utah. They were both on the run at the time, although it's not known exactly from what. When they arrived, they each contacted their families and told them what city they were in. The authorities caught wind of that and started to search SLC for them. One day, as Larry was walking down the road, an officer stopped him and asked him to sit in his cruiser as he looked him up in the database. Larry would normally have given an alias and be on his way, but this time he gave his real name. When he heard of all the warrants read off over the radio, he immediately took off out of the police cruiser and made an escape. Why did he give his real name? Yeah, if he knew that, I mean, Yeah, it's not like he was like, I don't know if I have warrants out for my arrest or not. Like, right. He knew, yeah. From there, Larry and Dorothy made their way to California where Larry Jr. was born. After his birth, Dorothy and Larry Sr. split up and Dorothy took Larry Jr. to Colorado. Larry's dad was in and out of his life for a while, mostly out. Two days after Larry turned six years old, his father came for a visit from California. After he'd been visiting for a few hours, several FBI agents burst into the house and arrested Larry Sr., It's suspected that Dorothy tipped the FBI off about Larry Sr.'s arrival, and he would end up spending several months in prison, and shortly after his release, Dorothy officially divorced him. It's said that witnessing his father's arrest shaped Larry Jr.'s personality and view on police and authority figures. That's got to be so traumatizing for a child. Oh, yeah. I I mean, mean, two days after his sixth birthday, his dad, who he has not seen in who knows how long and how many times he's actually seen him in his life Mm -hmm. is arrested in front of him. I mean, that's like, well, and when you're that little, you know, even though he's not around all the time, your dad hung the moon, your mom hung the moon, you know, like you love Mm -hmm. them so much and they're so important to you. So Mm -hmm. anybody who's going to take them away from you is the bad guy. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't understand what's going on. I'm sure. I mean, the, 
they busted up in there and arrested him. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's awful. Like, I don't know. And if his mom tipped him off, I know gotta, it's like, yeah. Could you? Could we maybe have like done it as he's getting in his car, not busted in the house in front of the kid? Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, maybe while way. Larry Senior or Larry Junior is asleep. Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. After their divorce. Dorothy moved back to California with Larry Jr. As he was growing up, Larry Sr. played more of a role in his son's life, though. He would take him on the weekends out to shooting ranges, wrestling matches, events, or out to the Rocky Mountains camping and hiking. It was during one of these Rocky Mountain trips that Larry Sr. began to talk to his son about his dislike for cops and law enforcement, which also greatly shaped Larry Jr.'s own views going forward. So you've already got, he saw them take his dad away. He's mm-hmm. still close to his dad, still loves his dad. And now his dad is being like, hey, they don't suck. trust cops. Yeah. yeah. In 1983, after completing the ninth grade in high school, Larry Jr. decided to drop out. He got a job and was able to make a little money. And he also met Sharon Santos, who he eventually married. It's around this time that Larry started to get into a new hobby, bodybuilding. His goal was to be the next Arnold Schwarzenegger. Wow. That's a lofty goal. It's a very lofty goal. And I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger, wasn't he Mr. Universe? Yeah. Yeah. That's like the goal. And also he was in Jingle All the Way. That's the real accomplishment there. Obviously. I mean, if I could be in Jingle All the Way, I would bodybuild. Right? Maybe I'll start this year. Well, I mean, come on. Give me an incentive, like Jingle All the Way. For sure. to, To work out. I don't know. If I was in Jingle All the Way, I would have been Zinbad. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> Thank you. I would have been Phil Hartman. Oh. Because precious. Hitting on everybody's wives. Yep. Yep. I'm just like that bored housewife over here, and I'm like, oh, can you lift something for me? <laughs> That's fine. I'll just wait for the Federal Express man. <laughs> just kidding. Larry got a membership at Gold's Gym and for the next several years became a gym rat. A few years later, Sharon and Larry welcomed their son into the world. In 1989, Larry followed in his dad's footsteps, though. He stole about $400 worth of suits off the rack from a Sears department store. He was quickly arrested and faced trial. I mean, I don't know. I guess there wouldn't be quite as many cameras, but like in 1989, but still. But still. But still, yeah. Like, (laughs) that's fucking ballsy. Well, and I don't know how much a suit is at Sears or was. I don't either. Do you think like $100 a piece or something? Probably for an expensive one at Sears in 1989. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 1989. Yeah, that's so that's maybe four, five, six suits tops. How how are you just going to walk out of there with all the damn suits? Yeah. Can't stick it in your purse. Right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, or unless he went Joey and put all the clothes on. Could have. Yeah. And he's like, no, these are just my muscles. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I just like, like really like layering (laughs) in my muscles. Yes, exactly. Okay. Now we're going to talk about Emil, the other BFF. And I'm going to fuck his name up. Uh, Emil. Matasarano. Matasarano. Montserrano. Oh, Montserrano. Okay, Montserrano. Yeah. Well, that's actually a lot easier mm-hmm. once you say it. He was born in July of 1966 in Romania. At a young age, he was diagnosed with an epileptic condition, which caused him to have seizures. Later, as an adult, he would take Dilantin for it. In 1974, hoping to escape the difficult life in Romania, Emil's mother, Valerie, and father, Viorel, moved their small family to Los Angeles. It was like a completely different world for them. Although they came to the U.S. with very little money, they were able to afford a home that was much larger than what they had in Romania. Emil was fascinated by the change of scenery. When he went to school, though, things weren't great. He was a bit of an overweight child and had an unfamiliar accent. As we know, kids can be pretty cruel sometimes, so he was bullied regularly. This bullying led to him having very few friends throughout elementary and middle school. It's just so sad. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't remember where I heard this, but like, you know, these people as adults, I don't feel bad for, but you do feel bad for them as children, you know? Like, I mean, how many times have we brought up the cell? Yeah. Because it's exactly that. Yeah. Like, who you were as a kid does not excuse the adult that you can sometimes become. But 
you can feel for that little kid and be like, Mm -hmm. man, that really sucks. Like nobody deserves that. Yeah. Yeah. Because like just pretty much everything that we end up doing is a response to trauma. Mm -hmm. Like, absolutely. So it's just like, you don't have those good examples in your life of how to appropriately handle the trauma that you've experienced. Yeah. And then you go on to, you know, but again, not everybody turns out that way. I mean, and what they did is fucking horrible. Well, I mean, uh, you're talking about what they did later in life. Yes, yes, yes. Later in life. Okay. Because I was going to make a point. I just don't understand why kids, anybody, why you have to make fun of something that's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why? Exactly. Why do we have to do that? Yeah. I also think, why is it very popular for, I guess, children? I mean, you see it in movies all of the time, but kids that are a little overweight or just they are ridiculed for their body shape and size. Like, why? Mm -hmm. This world has all kinds of people in it of all shapes and sizes. Why? Exactly. Yeah. Like, whatever. Grow up. Yeah, grow up. He stayed home a lot, which led him to an interest in computers. When he was 16, Emil helped his mother get her license to become a state healthcare worker to work with developmentally disabled adults. Emil was also able to get a small, tight-knit group of friends, but life at home for their family began to suffer. Viorel and Valerie had growing tensions between one another and eventually divorced. After his parents' divorce, Emil enrolled at DeVry University and studied electrical engineering. In 1987, he graduated and opened a small business doing personal computer repair and sales. The business never really took off, and he continued to struggle with money. It was around this time that he became extremely interested in firearms. That is a jump. Yeah, definitely. Like computers or just straight guns, automatic weapons. (laughs) (laughs) But he also became interested in bodybuilding because he also wanted to be in Jingle all the way. (laughs) Emil joined a Gold's Gym and made a new friend, and they bonded over their interest and desire to improve their bodies. And that friend was... Not Arnold, Mm -mm. but Larry Phillips Jr. Mm. And Mark placed a very well-placed, now I've said placed too many times, (laughs) gif or jif of, we're here to pop you up from SNL. I love it. Pop you up. (laughs) And it's Dana Carvey and I can't think of that other guy. Kevin Nealon? Yes. Uh, I do know some people. That's great. I'm so glad. You know what? Together, maybe we can come up with about 50 or so people. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about leading up to the Bank of America robbery. Even after they met and became friends, Larry continued with his life of petty crime. Mostly theft, but he also cooked up a real estate scheme. He went to Colorado and posed as a prospective homebuyer. He called a few real estate agents and set up meetings and showings for homes to buy. He was shown an estimated 50 homes, and out of those 50, he was able to pull his scheme on two. When the agents went to open the key boxes to the houses, he looked into or he looked to see the key, the security code they put in, and he memorized it. So he would return later. He would get the keys, make a copy. From there, he would put out ads in local papers advertising the house for rent. <laughs> this happens now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. But it's pretty, just so like, I. It's crazy. No, it's insane. It's ridiculous. Who does this? I know. It's so mean. Because yeah. there's so many people who to get a first and last month's rent. You know, mm-hmm. that is a lot. That takes so much. It's like, all right, I'm it's putting all my eggs money. in this basket. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot of money at one time. Like, mm-hmm. security deposit, all the things. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And then you yeah. think you live there, and then you find out no, you were scammed. Yep. Oh, that's awful. And it would be different. Like now, if I saw somebody posted something on, let's say, Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or a Facebook group, I'd be like a little wary of it. Ads were what people did back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's how do, you, how do you weed out the scams from the legit ones? Well, and especially if you meet up with the person, they type in the fucking code, you know, yeah. or like they have a key. It's like, okay, well. Well, yeah. yeah. And I don't know if he kept any of those suits, but he's got a nice suit on. It's true. Yeah. Always trust a man wearing a suit. I do. I definitely do. Especially if it's powder blue or something. Smart guy right there. Mm. Or $600 suit. Come on. (laughs) I love that. 
So generally, he could meet with people after a quote unquote approving them as renters and collect security deposits in the first and month's last, first and last month's rent. So Larry tried to pull his scheme with Cheryl Meyer. She and her husband went to the property before meeting with Larry in person. At the property, they were approached, or they approached a man who was there, and he claimed that he was the owner and the house was for sale and not for rent. He called his Remax agent, who confirmed that it was for sale, and told the Myers that it was a known scheme. He advised that they call the police, who had the Myers set a meeting with Larry. And when they arrived for the meeting, he was arrested. Good, because you can't do that kind of stuff. It's so rude. Larry gave a false name, but his true identity was discovered after the police ran a trace on the vehicle he drove, which led back to his mother, Dorothy Clay. He was held on a $1 million bail, but it was lowered when his wife, Susan, came after cashing in her entire life savings of $10,000. After his release, he returned home with Sharon, but their relationship was fractured. She was panicked and fear-stricken about her savings being depleted and suspected that Larry was cheating on her. They had two children and he was, or she was afraid that Larry was going to leave her alone to raise them with no money. Eventually, her fears were realized when Larry walked out on them and fled before his sentencing in his real estate scheme. He was on the run and ended up hiding out with Emil. The two began to travel around from Colorado to California and places in between. What a piece of shit. I know. His wife. Gave up everything she had. Everything she had to get your dumbass out of jail. And you walk out on her and your children. Mm-hmm. Oh, because you're scared. Oh. That kind of reminds me of Andrew Cunanan's dad. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. You know, just like can't face the music by right. also sold the house that you lived in. But, you know. You know what? If you can't do the time, then don't do the crime. Okay? That's the whole thing. Yeah. That's a little saying I just made up right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. But you are really good at making up sayings. Just I know. No, I know. But, I mean, it just came to me. But it, mm-hmm. it makes sense, right? So it's like, quit doing that. Yeah. And it rhymes. Uh, so I know. Great, you know? So that's, when, that's how you know people are going to believe it, is if it rhymes. <laughs> In early 1993, Emil had to return to Romania to help his grandmother move to the U.S. And while there, he met a young woman named Christina. They eventually married and had a son. Emil was super proud of his son, Emil Jr., <sighs> a former— What? I'm, I'm sorry, but can they not— Like, can we Everybody no a other names? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. I don't know. A former coworker said that Emil would come in every day showing pictures of his son as if he had just been born. That's sweet. It is sweet, but that's where the sweetness ends. Yeah, it is. In July of 1993, Larry stepped up his criminal activities and Emil was right there with him. They were in Colorado and had been watching a branch of First Bank in Littleton. On July 20th, they made their move. As an armored car pulled up outside of the bank, Larry and Emil approached with guns and demanded the guards give them money. The guards complied, and Larry and Emil were able to get away without injuring anybody. But in October of 1993, the men were in a brand new Ford Thunderbird that they had rented at the airport. They sped away from a gas station where they caught the eye of a patrol car. The cop initiated a stop, and eventually they pulled over. When asked for his license, Phillips attempted to lie and say he left it at home and that the car belonged to his mother. The officer knew it was a rental car, though, and ordered the men to get out, and that's when he noticed each had 9mm Glock pistols, which he took from them. The men were placed into custody, and a search of the vehicle yielded a small arsenal. So there were two semi-automatic rifles, two handguns, more than 1,600 rounds of 7.62 rifle ammo, mostly loaded into 30-round magazines and 375-round drum magazines. 960 rounds of 9 millimeter ammo, 350 rounds of 45 caliber Um, ammo. Yes. Six smoke bombs, two improvised explosive devices, one gas mask, two sets of National Armor Level 3 vests, two 200 channel portable scanners with headsets, gloves, wigs, masks, three different California license plates, and $1,600 in cash. It sounds innocent to me. I don't I don't <laughs> understand. I mean, most rental cars just come stocked with this kind of I equipment, right? Everything but the wigs, sure. Mm, the wigs. You, gotta, gotta you have to bring BYOW, bring your own wig. That's how they get you, isn't it? Yeah. Nickel and diamond, aren't they? Well, I mean, if you upgrade to a luxury package, maybe, but. Oh, that's true. Yeah, luxury package comes with wigs. Got it. <laughs> like, what the fuck were they going to do with all this stuff? I know. If not, they exactly what they ended up doing. Come. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yep. 
Although they never said why they had it, it's thought that the men were speeding because they were trying to get a safe house, get to a safe house to dump all these items. They were identified via fingerprinting and charged with conspiracy to commit robbery, grand theft auto, unlawful weapons activity, carrying, concealing a firearm, and perjury. During a preliminary hearing, the preliminary hearing. Oh, I couldn't even get it the second time. <laughs> During a no, preliminary hearing. Jeez. <laughs> The grand theft and perjury charges were dropped due to lack of evidence. In December of 1993, Larry and Emil were sentenced to 99 and 71 days in prison. Days. 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 Plus 36 days of probation each. Oh, well, that's that's equal to... You can do anything for 36 days. You can't run. Can't run, no. <laughs> no. But they had explosive devices. Mm-hmm. A bajillion rounds of ammo. Yeah. Like, they stole a car. They lied about who they were. They... (laughs) Bulletproof vests. Yeah. You're intending to be in a shootout. (laughs) Like, you're intending to need to protect yourself from bullets. But they didn't have any drugs, Torella. What's what's the crime here? That's true. Right? Yeah. I mean, it really is, though. Yeah, if they'd had drugs, they would have gotten way more Locked up for life, yes. 99 days and 70, like, I cannot. I know, I know. And probation after for 36 days. 36 Mm -hmm. days, I was, you know, I'm thinking, okay, it'll it'll definitely be 36 months. No, 36 days. Yeah, I just don't understand. I know. And his crime when he was, was it when he was doing the suits? No, the real estate. His bail was set at $1 million. A <laughs> <laughs> million dollars. And then they're like, well, just hang out in here for a couple hours. And then I don't know. We'll just let you go. It's not even a big deal. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Like, yeah. So they both completed their sentences and they were released without incident. After being released, they managed to lay low for a while. In July of 1995 in LA, Larry and Emil approached a stopped Brinks armored car each had automatic rifles and open fire on the back door. Within seconds, the door had been blasted open and the men collected money from within and they made their escape. They left behind 51-year-old Herman Dwight Cook, a security guard that they shot and killed. And like, they wouldn't even be like, hey, you know, give me your money. I don't even know that Herman Dwight Cook argued with them or anything like that. Yeah. They just would open the door and shoot whoever. They had no care. It was like they wanted to kill, they did. They wanted to kill people. Yeah, just for the fun of it or something. Yeah. In March of 1996, there was a Brinks truck driving down the street when a maroon-colored Ford Econoline van pulled up near it. The two men in the van opened fire on the armored car. Broken glass from the window injured one of the guards. The armored car didn't stop, though, and sped off. Eventually, they lost sight of the van and escaped. It remains unconfirmed that this was Larry and Emil, but it fits their MO and is considered to have been them. In May of 1996, the pair decided that trucks didn't have enough money and they'd stepped it up and started robbing actual banks. They entered a Bank of America location in Van Nuys Mm -hmm. around 10 a.m. Armored with automatic rifles, they made their demands and collected money. Eight minutes later, they made off with over $750,000 in cash. That's a whole lot of money. Good God. A whole hell of a lot of money. A month later, another Bank of America was robbed for almost $800,000 in cash, and two tellers were left injured. The men expected there to be over $2 million in the bank, but Bank of America had changed some of their security measures, resulting in money being collected from the bank two days prior. After this robbery, Emil had a seizure. His wife, Christina, used that as an excuse to leave him with their son, Emil Jr., it's more likely that stress from Emil and Larry's actions had finally reached a point of no return and she made her escape. Mm. So let's get to the day in question here. Leading up to their next attempted robbery, Larry and Emil spent months preparing. They cased the bank and studied the patterns and habits of the employees. They learned the schedule of the armored truck drivers. The morning of the robbery, they filled a jar with gasoline and threw it in the backseat of their white celebrity. Their plan was to use it to set the vehicle, weapon, and equipment ablaze after the robbery and make their escape. They also spent weeks and months amassing a new arsenal of weapons, ammo, and armor. The day of the robbery, Larry wore roughly 40 pounds of gear, including a Type 3 bulletproof vest. And 
So we watched a documentary on this on, it was National Geographic, but you can watch it on YouTube. Yeah. And the narrator explained this, but it's a British narrator. So I think that they were doing everything in like kilograms. kilograms. Yeah. Yeah. So they said how much it weighed, but in a measurement that I don't know anything about. Mm -hmm. And he said roughly five bowling balls. And I was like, well, that's not even a good measurement either because what pound bowling ball are we talking about? Which bowling ball? Yeah. Exactly. Is it 12, 16? Is it an eight? Six? Yeah. yeah. Either way, that's a lot of bowling balls. Well, I don't want to carry one bowling ball, so. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this vest is designed to take shots from a 7.62 caliber rifle. This caliber is devastating in regards to the damage it causes, and Larry's vest was designed to stand up to it. He also wore a vest with several pouches designed to carry extra ammunition and magazines. He took other vests and removed the armor plates from them and attached them to his own, providing even more armor coverage around his body, mainly his shins, thighs, and forearms. Emil wore a similar vest, but only placed an additional trauma plate beneath it to help protect his vital organs. He didn't have the same leg and arm protection that Larry set up for himself. You'd think Larry would make sure that they both had the same protection, but every man for himself, I guess. Yeah. Even with less armor than Larry, both men were protected by military-grade armor, which could easily withstand the handguns the police had. They each also had sewn a watch into their gloves so they could monitor their time into the bank and make an escape. During the shootout, several different guns were used by the men. A Bushmaster XM-15 assault rifle was used. Also, I don't know anything about guns. Doria doesn't really either, so... How do you this know? Is, we're just reading, basically, the gun stuff. Yeah, no, I don't know anything about it. And my first thought was Larry Bushman from Golden Girls. That's one of Blanche's boyfriends. I was like, oh, Bushman. <laughs> Larry it's Bushman. Not. Or Mel Bushman, excuse me. It was Mel Bushman. Oh, sure. I, I just want to get it correct. I don't know why. <laughs> The Bushmaster is the same weapon that was used in the Sandy Hook Elementary School attack. Mm. A Beretta 92 FS handgun with several rounds and magazines was also used. A Heckler and Koch? I don't know. Coke? Yeah, I don't know. Coke? Mm. Oh. Coke. I don't know. Oh. Oh. Okay. You never know. HK-91 semi-automatic rifle with several 30-round magazines. Three different models of, okay, AK-47s. I don't know. Kalashnikov. Okay. Uh, That were illegally modified to hold larger drum magazines with 75 to 100 rounds each. As they entered the bank, they set their watch alarms for eight minutes, which was the time they estimated it would take for the police to respond. What they didn't know, though. So, like, they've spent months and months and months watching stuff. They've been listening to police scanners. So, like, and I think in in that National Geographic thing, they said in L.A. there were three armed robberies a day. Hmm. So... They had some stuff to listen to to kind of see how police respond. So they, in all of their research, they were like, we've got eight minutes to get in there and get out with this money, right? Mm-hmm. Except that, that morning, when they were getting out of their car and going into the bank, a patrol officer happened to be driving by and saw them. And he was like, this looks suspicious as fuck. Yeah, because they're wearing all black with masks. With masks, yeah. And he's like, "Uh uh-uh. So he calls in a 211, which is a robbery in progress. This caused the response time to be much shorter than they expected. I mean, they were literally like watching them go in. And so they just sat out there. Mm -hmm. And then they had other, you know, officers showing up too. So they were pretty much, as soon as they walked in, they were like, hey, we fucking saw you. (laughs) Idiots. They forced a customer who was near the entrance at the ATM to go in with them, and as they entered, Larry shouted, this is a robbery, as Emil shot towards the ceiling. A guard inside tried to radio his partner in the parking lot to call the police, but it was never received. They ordered the bank employees to open the vault after shooting the bulletproof door, separating the lobby from the employees. Like, literally, these employees are crouched down, and they're like, well, at least we have a bulletproof door. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's only designed for light caliber shots. And so they've got these automatic weapons and they had steel plated bullets. Mm-hmm. And the, these things tore through their bulletproof stuff like it was freaking nothing like tissue paper. I mean, yeah. it was ridiculous. Yeah. I'm, the the police once the, well, let's just, I'm, I'm getting ahead of ourselves here. Okay. 
So they get in, no problems, and then they want access to the vault area. So they force an employee to open it and fill their bags. And they're also trying to have the bank manager open the ATM, which he was unable to do because of the new security changes. After the money was in their bags, they exited with only a little over $300,000 in three dye packs. They were in the bank for about seven minutes. And after they left, the dye packs exploded and ruined all the money. I mean... And they also said the guy, the manager, the bank manager or whatever, who opened the vault for them. So basically what the banks had done, and this is what happened at one of the other banks that they hit, was they started changing, like rotating what day in times, Mm -hmm. yeah, that the deliveries were made. So they were expecting, like this was like the last Friday of the month. They were expecting it to be full. It was supposed to have the most money then. But it didn't because the delivery hadn't happened yet because it rotated and they didn't know when it was going to come. So they opened the vault and there's not as much money in there and they're pissed. Mad as hell. Yeah. And they said that like Larry just opened fire on the money in the vault. He's throwing a what? temper tantrum. Yes, a temper tantrum. And like, if you do think you're going to get out with this money, like... You've just blown it into smithereens. Yeah, you've blown it to smithereens. Like, you've done all the work. Okay, it's not near as... They were expecting, I think, a couple million on this hit by itself. But you've done the work and you're in here and you're like, wouldn't you just take what money you could get? Like, okay, well, 300,000 wasn't what I was expecting, but I'll fucking take all of it. Like, Well, yeah, I mean, if we learned anything from the hot chick starring the very talented Rob Schneider... And Rachel McAdams, whenever he goes and robs the gas station and he's like, give me all the money. And then he's like, you only have $12. And he's like, hey, man, it's early. And, you know, that's all we got. And he's like, but help yourself to some nachos. And so he like puts a bunch of chips in his bag and then just pours the cheese into his bag. It's ridiculous. But take what you can get. Take what I can get. Exactly. While they were inside, the officers outside heard the shots and called in the shots fired along with the robbery again. By the time they exited, the police had surrounded the bank and had all corners covered. This was also a giant-as-fuck bank. Mm -hmm. Did you think so? Huge. It looked huge. huge. Yeah, like, it looked like one of the buildings at the airport to me. Like, it was just like, holy shit. Well, and it's got, like, three freaking exits, so. It was like a north entrance and a south entrance. It's like a whole thing. Right. Larry had exited through the north entrance and immediately saw a police cruiser set up about 200 feet away. And without hesitation, he opened fire for several minutes in controlled bursts. And this is an automatic weapon. So, I mean, they're just no match for this. Mm -mm. Just from this initial encounter, seven officers and three civilians were injured. He also shot at a police helicopter that had been dispatched to keep an eye from above. The chopper had to disengage and get a safe distance away. As the calls went out to the police, news outlets also heard what was going on and started to show up. This is probably not the time the one you want to show up yeah. to. <laughs> like, he's literally shooting everybody with automatic weapons. Like, I would probably that think you should stay away. Steel-plated bullets, and you're going— yeah. I mean, that's—it's like a suicide mission. Yeah, exactly. And, like, because they said that normally, you know, if there is a shootout of any kind or whatever— you can get behind a police cruiser and it's going to protect you. Mm-hmm. These bullets ripped through the police cruisers like it was tissue paper. Mm-hmm. People were getting shot left and right through the cars. Like, I, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but there was one officer that got shot in his side and the bullet came out through his leg. Mm-hmm. The side of his, I mean, that's insane to me. Like, yeah, it just ripped right through him. Yes, it's so crazy. There were news helicopters above the scene. Several stations nationwide interrupted their normal programming with live footage of the shootout. Larry briefly retreated into the bank and reemerged through the north exit, while Emil came out via the south exit. Each man then engaged with officers, shooting at officers and and patrol cars alike. The officers that were on the scene were equipped with standard-issue pistols. They either carried a 9mm pistol or a 38 caliber revolver, And a few had a 12-gauge shotgun. Like, one or two. That's it. The officers immediately returned fire at both men, but their bullets just bounced off. The weapons were no match for the heavily armored men. 10 to 15 minutes into the shootout, an officer was heard over the radio saying, do not stop the getaway vehicle. They've got automatic weapons. There is nothing we have that can stop them. Like, if they get out of here, you have got to let them go. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. 
at the time, the officers only spotted one weakness in the men's armor, which was their heads. So you can like, all of this is like caught live by all of these, you know, choppers and all the stuff. But you also have the police radio, mm-hmm. like audio, and they're just like, you have to go for the head. I mean, it sounds like the zombie apocalypse. Like you yeah. have to go for the head. But like, yeah. they literally, like one of the officers was like, you know, I was close. I had, um, I think it was the one who had a shotgun. And he shot at, I think it was Larry. It was. And he's like, okay, I shot him and I'm waiting for him to go down. Larry said it was a standard police body shot. Like Mm -hmm. it was not going to kill him. It was just going to disarm him, disable him. And he was close enough that it was a direct hit. Like he Mm -hmm. was like, I know I hit him. And he spun around and then locked in on his position. He was behind a like ATM kiosk or something. Yes. And just started shooting with his automatic weapon, which tore right through the kiosk. And this is the one where he got shot in the side and it came out of his leg. Like, and he, he was, was just his like, back. Mm-hmm. yeah. And he was just like, I watched him and I'm like, why is he not going down? Like, what right? is happening here? He was so protected with everything that he had on. What? Oh my gosh. What bad guy? Oh, maybe it was. It was something swallows on Austin Powers. Spio shagged me, and he's like, "Why won't you die?" Oh, yeah. And because she would not die for anything. It was, but that's kind of the feeling that I got whenever they said that. It's like we cannot get this guy down. We could not take him down. Yeah, I mean, they're all you know. Everybody's trying to take shots at him, and they had been shot and would have been hit. You know, like mm-hmm. multiple times. And literally, the police are like, "It's just bouncing off." Yeah, we have to go for their heads. That's yeah, the only option. There's the only way. Like, it's just crazy. And then, of course, like, you know, during the whole thing, Larry and Emil are just spraying them with automatic gunfire. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just no match. Mm-mm. Several officers spotted a gun store nearby and rushed over and acquired five AR-15s from the store. This is crazy. Reports after the incident indicated that while Larry was still near the north exit and using cars in the parking lot as cover, one officer fired almost 109-millimeter rounds at him, hitting him at least once. Additionally, there was a Del Taco across the road that provided officers with cover so they could fire as well. As Larry was pinned down, Emil got in their getaway car and backed up to where Larry was. As Larry went near the car, he was hit in the wrist along with his rifle. After the shot, his rifle was rendered inoperable and he dropped it. He had like a a jam, like the mm-hmm. casing didn't eject right. And he needed to flick it out with his but thumb. He but he got shot right above his thumb and he couldn't move it. Mm-hmm. And so he was just like, fuck it, and just dropped it. He then made his way to the trunk of the car and grabbed a different assault rifle as Emil kept firing at police. If you watch the footage of the shootout, you get a clear picture of their bravado and confidence. They're not in a hurry to do anything. Almost casually walking around and firing, basically like daring the police to do something. And this is crazy because they get in the car at this point and all the police were like, they could have made their getaway right then. They could have driven away and there's nothing we could have done about it. But they chose to stay and fight. Well, and that's what police were hoping for. They were like, please just go. Yeah. Just go. Yeah. No, but they, yeah. Yeah, but they chose to stay. And like, I think it comes somewhat from, well, and I guess we'll get into the movie too, but this intense hatred that Larry had for the police. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, had a lot to do with it. And Emil would basically just do whatever Larry said. Like he was just the the follower of Larry. We didn't talk about this, but Emil was a very, very, very large guy. Very Mm -hmm. large guy. So I think that, yeah, Larry was the brains. Emil was kind of like the Lenny from A Mice and Men, like just kind of tagging along with Larry, just doing whatever the hell he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he had a very extreme love for firearms and weapons, but still, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like the stars align just just so to where you have the worst combo of all times and it results in something like this. Yeah. Oh, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. This was around the time that the LAPD SWAT team arrived wearing gym shorts and t-shirts under their body armor because they were out on a training exercise when the call came in. They quickly commandeered an armored truck and began to move in to get wounded and downed officers and civilians out of harm's way. Still in the parking lot, Emil was shot three times, right buttock, right leg, and left forearm. This caused him to drop his bag of money as he attempted to get into the car and escape. 
While he was doing that, Larry walked beside the car using it as cover, firing at police as Emil slowly tried to exit the parking lot. At this point, they split up. And the police are like, I don't get why this happened. Like, again, why didn't they just leave? But Mm -hmm. they split up. So Larry walks down the sidewalk near the bank and there was a semi-truck parked down the road a little bit and so Larry gets behind it. And from there, he keeps firing and his rifle jams again. So he discards it. He pulls out a pistol. He starts firing again. An officer shoots him in his hand. This causes him to drop the pistol. And at this point, he knows. I mean, he doesn't have his automatic weapons anymore. And the police officer that shot him was like, now we're even, you know? Mm -hmm. Now I feel like I can do something about this. It's a fair fight. It's a fair fight, yeah. And Larry knows this, and he knows he's done, so he puts the rifle under his chin, or the pistol, I'm sorry, and he shoots himself in the head. And his body falls. The police officers were still shooting, but once he fell, they stopped. They surrounded his body, removed his mask, and handcuffed him. As Larry was ending his life, Emil was slowly making his way down the road in their white celebrity shooting out the windows as he went. The police shot out two of the tires, which greatly slowed his progress. While all of this was happening, the police were acting quickly to try to shut down roads and keep people from driving through and into the area. After his tires were blown, Emil kept trying to move until a pickup came down the road in the opposite direction. He approached it slowly and just shot at the driver. Like, just, you know, he's just like, yeah. The driver jumped out and ran away, but before he did, he activated an electronic kill switch in his truck, meaning it would be completely useless to Emil as a getaway car. Emil didn't know that, though, and so he starts transferring his guns and his ammos to the truck, and at that time, he was about three blocks away from where Larry died. I just want to go back to that for a second. How many ammos? What did I say? Did I say ammo? his guns and ammos. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, every single ammos he had. All of the ammos. Yeah. All of the ammos. (laughs) Stupid. I just liked that it was funny. Guns and ammos. Emil got into the truck, but it would not start. So he was like, shit. As he did that, like, you know, he said either shit or fuck, probably. Yes. He was like, darn. Darn. As he did that, SWAT officers quickly rushed up to the truck in a patrol car. And as he saw this, Emil quickly jumped out of the truck and went to the opposite end of the officer's. For the next two minutes and 30 seconds, there was constant gunfire coming from Emil's weapons and the police. SWAT officers hit him in the chest multiple times, but his armor deflected it. One officer quickly laid down and fired his AR-15 below the cars, striking Emil in the shins. And he quickly fell and put his hands above his head, surrendering. So the officer noticed he doesn't have the head-to-toe armor or neck-to-toe armor that Larry has. And he identified his weakness. That I don't, I'm not saying anything good about these people, you know, these men, but that would suck to get shot in the shins. Oh my God. Yeah. That would really suck. Jeez. Officers rushed in and handcuffed Emil, asking him his name and if there were any more gunmen. He told them his name was Pete and fuck you, shoot me in the head. Like he just kept asking them to kill him. That's really rude though. Fuck you. Like, whoa. Yeah. After everything, it could have been like, hey guys, sorry. Yeah, maybe he was just trying to be like, I'm get them mad so they'll just shoot yeah. you. Well, I mean, I know what it takes to get an officer mad enough to shoot a prisoner because I've seen seven. Mm-hmm. What's at the box? Emil was handcuffed and lying on the ground, bleeding from his gunshots, but ambulances were following procedures and not entering a quote hot zone. At that time, the police didn't know if there were any more gunmen, so until they could confirm, it was too dangerous to bring more people into the area. He laid there, bleeding out for almost an hour as police were radioing for the ambulance. While he was there, he was still swearing and trying to get the police to kill him, and he died shortly before EMTs arrived. Coroner reports later showed that he was hit 29 times in his legs and died from excessive blood loss. How did he have any legs left? I know. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. That's so much. So many bullets and two legs, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, over 300 law enforcement officers had responded. Emil and Larry fired over 1,100 rounds, roughly one round every two seconds. Jesus. The police fired 650 rounds over the course of the gunfight. Their training had worked against them as they were trained to shoot center mass, which is exactly where the robbers had the most protection. Larry was shot 11 times, including his self-inflicted shot, 
while Emil was shot 29 times, as we mentioned earlier. 12 police officers had been shot and were injured. Eight civilians had been shot and injured. But miraculously, the only deaths from the shootout were Larry and Emil. That's literally unheard of. Like when I found that out, I was like, I'm so grateful, but how? Does that not give you chills? Like, yes, it gives me chills. It's, it's yeah. so, it's a beautiful, I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's an amazing I mean, thing. Yeah. Just that many. And, you know, there were people just living their lives that day, you know, like not even just the officers, but like people like, hey, I'm going to show up to the bank. And yeah, like yeah. I'm walking past that, you know, there's a lot of pedestrian traffic in LA. So like there are people walking around and how so many people were shot and nobody else died. It's just incredible. Yeah. It's so amazing. I got emotional like watching the thing because of course I did because I always do. But just like thinking about how, you know, there were, they talked to, you know, some officers who were like, you know, there was one particular officer who almost died. Mm -hmm. He lost consciousness finally. He was bleeding out. And, but he was right in the, the firing zone. And so they're like, you know, we can't come in and rescue him. Whitman? Yes, something like that. Yes. Whitmore, Whitland. And finally, one officer was like, I'm going in and getting him. Like, it might be a suicide mission, but if today is the day I'm supposed to die, this is what I signed up for. I signed up to protect and serve. So I'm going to go in there even though it's dangerous. And I was just like, oh my gosh. Just like people, these are officers running toward automatic gunfire. You Mm -hmm. know, because they're trying to protect their community. I know there's a lot of stuff, you know, but this, I just. I think that we do enough talking about the way that that law enforcement can be better. And I think that that's an important conversation to have. But I also think that it's really important to take note and notice when law enforcement does their job and does it so well. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're literally putting their lives on the line. Like, yeah, the sacrifice that they made because one of the officers who got shot in the back, it missed his spine by an inch. Yeah. And these are fathers. These are husbands. These are, you know, brothers. Grandfathers, brothers. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, there's all kind of, you know, and women too. There were, there were not very many women officers, but, you know. And well, and some of the detectives were women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they were, are, they weren't armed at all. I mean, uh, yeah, they didn't have any armor. Yeah, they had no vests and they were still, you know, like, hey, we're here to help. It's just incredible to me. The way that they work together is just amazing. The LAPD and law enforcement agencies across the country changed their operations and procedures because of this event. Many officers were armed with AR-15 rifles in their cruisers, as well as making sure that officers outside of just SWAT had access to higher firepower if needed. LAPD cruisers going forward were equipped with bullet-resistant Kevlar in the doors. In April of 1997, a home that had been owned by Emil was raided and police seized incendiary 7.62 millimeter rounds, more body armor and ballistic helmets, $400,000 in stolen cash, and various firearms. A year after the incident, 18 officers in the LAPD received the Departmental Medal of Valor for their actions that day. Emil's family filed a, a lawsuit against members of the LAPD for, quote, violating his civil rights by not allowing the ambulance to come into the hot zone. The suit ended in a mistrial with a hung jury in 2000 and was later dropped. I have a little bit of a hard time with that. I understand. I mean, no ambulance was there to help him. I I get that. But he had been begging for someone to end his life up until that point. And he had no regard of anybody else's civil rights when he was, yes, shooting at everybody. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, there were how many other people left there to bleed out because you're shooting with automatic guns. And yeah. so ambulances not giving can't them come a chance in. to have an ambulance. Yeah. 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 I have a hard time with that too. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it's got to be very hard for, you know, both of their families because of none course. of them asked for yeah. that. But it is literally just a miracle that he didn't kill anybody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. and also, we're not going to put first responders, paramedics, and EMTs in, in danger of just coming in and being shot. Right, exactly. And I mean, they did ask him, are there other gunmen? And his response is, fuck you. Yeah. So now they have to go and secure everything around. 
and figure and out sure. for themselves. You yeah, know? absolutely. I mean, I guess probably they would still have to do that even if he was like, there's definitely no other gunmen. But still. But still. Yeah. The reason why they have to make sure there's no other gunmen is because you're a gunman. Yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, I just, yeah. I I do hate it, you know, obviously for their families, but, you know, you've got to do what you got to do. Yeah, certain things, verbiage, maybe, it just really makes me angry, like violating his civil rights. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about civil rights right now? Oh, you yeah. want to talk about mothers? Like, yeah, I just can't. Yeah. It's, yeah, that's just me personally, but I get it. I mean, I I feel yeah. for every, all of the the ripple affected people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's just it's just a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's it. I mean, things were changed. You know, there's still a lot, obviously, around gun control and all those things. It's it's so hard. I mean, there there definitely need to be things in place, but at the same time, like. They didn't get these things from on the up and up, you know? They got Mm -hmm. stuff from other countries and, like, you know, the drums that they were using for the automatic rifles were banned, you know, to have that many bullets in them at a time. And, you know, so they're not not getting things in a legal way. But... But, yeah, I mean, the amount of gun-related crimes or however you want to say that, the amount of shootings that have happened Mm -hmm. in the U.S. alone is kind of astounding. I know that it happens in other places as well, but in the United States, I mean, there there are too many. There's too Mm -hmm. many. So there's just, to me, there's just no reason that somebody should have an automatic weapon. Automatic assault rifle, yeah. There's no reason for an automatic weapon. Mm-mm. We're not in the zombie apocalypse. No. Like, and know. yeah, unless you think that there's an, a zombie apocalypse uh, coming, I don't know why you would need that. And my dad, our dad, he's your dad too. <laughs> he's my dad um, too. I was, <laughs> was talking to him last night and he said that he worked with a guy who really enjoyed collecting automatic weapons. And he was like, I don't think that I mean, they were just having a conversation about it. And he was like, why would you need something like that? And he was like, well, I like to go hunting. And he was like, there's no, you would never use an automatic Absolutely weapon. not. You wouldn't have any animal left. Yeah. Yeah. You would like, never use no that for hunting. For yeah. Yeah. He was like, even semi-automatic weapons, because if you have to, you know, you have to keep pulling the trigger. But when it kicks back, your body braces itself and it keeps mm-hmm. shooting. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, there's I mean, just, there's just, yeah, there's just no reason for it. Mm-mm. I agree. I agree, agree. Yeah. Same. Well, this was, if you, if you guys do want to watch something on it, there's that thing. Um, it's a National Geographic thing. We can link to it and you can watch it on YouTube. Stressful as fuck. Oh my God. Stressful. I was so yes. stressed out. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so much going on and it lasted like 45 minutes. And it's the, completely the shootout. The, the stress. Yeah. The, Can you imagine? This documentary never came down. No. You know no. what I mean? I was just like, oh my God, my heart is like pumping. But yeah, it's. can you imagine being in that? Because like there were civilians that were walking into the bank like when the police were like noticing like, hey, they went in there and like we think there's a robbery going on and stuff like that. And so the police were like, hey, you know, obviously don't walk in there, come over here. And they put them behind one of the cruisers because they're like, that's going to protect you. And of course, both of them got shot because they were ripping through it like it was tissue paper. Just hearing them talk about their experience and being like, and then this lasted 45 minutes. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I could not imagine being that level of stressed out and terrified for that long. No. It's horrific. terrible. Mm -hmm. I hope all of these people have access to a good therapy. Absolutely. Jeez. And good doctors. Yeah. But thank you so much for listening and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Okay, guys, before we go this week, we want to give some Hey Girl thanks to some of our new patrons. Yes. Thank you so much to Heather Davis, Tiffany, Caitlin Parker, Stephanie Lynn, J3381, Katie Graves-Curcio, Maria Margot, Laura Brown, 
Alexis Moore, Amber Starkey, Jacqueline Joest, Victoria Ryder, Lynette Nelson, Cheney Musgrave, Alex Donovan, Gabriella Hayes, Gracie Dutra, Mandy, Danica Hill, Anya, Haley Marshall, Cassie Robinson, Nicole Wren, Mark Main, Tatiana Weber, Kira Shannon, Jasmine Bell Johnson, Carrie Santos, Chelsea Plant, DM Chambers, Angela Jimenez, 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 Jimenez. Maybe one of those is right. Sorry. <laughs> Priscilla Riley, Melissa A. Delup, Bailey Boudreaux, Kara Sachs, Alexandra Jordan, Bethany Carr, Wendy Wright, Jennifer Brooks, Kelly. Kelly W. Ludersick. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Amanda. Frankie. Michaela Tabor Gira. Oh, wait, Kelly's on here twice. Oh, thanks, Kelly. Yeah, you might have two accounts. <laughs> or I copied you over twice. So we doubly thank you. Yes, we doubly thank everyone. Absolutely. We love you guys. Yes, thank you so much. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. 